It's true, friends, isn't it, that when we are um, spiritually dry, when we are not on fire for Jesus, when we are lacking zeal, isn't it true that the Christian life can seem quite unfair? Isn't that right? When we are uh, not on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Christian life can, can feel somewhat unfair. That what can happen is that we look around at the people in our lives and we can assume that these people out there have it easier than we do. That the people in the world have it better than we do. That the Christian life does not seem quite fair. Do you see it? That when we're not filled with zeal, we look at them and we think, well, hang on a second, they don't have to worry about being self-disciplined, do they? And the people at university and your friends and the people, your colleagues and unbelieving members of your family, they don't have to worry and obsess about pursuing holiness, do they? And they don't have to get up first thing in the morning and travel across London eh, to go to London City Presbyterian Church. Do you see it when we are not filled with this fire, Holy Spirit, filled with the, the, the zeal and concern for the glory of God, other people's lives seem better, seem attractive. The world seems attractive. Their lives seem easier and better than ours. Is that really the case? Well, tonight what God does in First Samuel chapter 18 is something really wonderful. I love it. What he does is he raises up two things before your eyes. There is, in front of you tonight, there is a contrast. Okay? Two things. On one hand, you were shown Saul, and you were shown what it means to live a life that is alienated from God. And there's something else. On the other hand, God shows you in this chapter, David, and he shows you what it looks like to live a life, not that is alienated from God, but what it looks like to live a life that knows God and loves God and receives God's favor. A contrast. And tonight, as we look at this contrast, what I think we'll be reminded about, Christian friend, is that though it's hard, isn't it? And though it's difficult sometimes, that the Christian life is a wonderful life, a life full to the brim of God's blessing. Two things, Saul and David, three points in each. So let's consider Saul first of all. And the first thing about Saul that we see here is that um, is, uh, the ungodly life is governed by pride. Pride. The ungodly life is governed by pride. Now, if you've been here for the recent sermons in the sermon series, would you not agree with the statement that there's been an awful lot of action? In these recent chapters of 1 Samuel, would you not? There's a lot of stuff, a lot of good activity. Think about it recently. What have we had? We've had David and Goliath. What a chapter that was. Then we had David and Jonathan. And love the idea, don't you, of those souls being knit together. And then if you were here last week, what did we have? We had David and Saul and a very close shave 
uh, with a spear. So you're with me, aren't you? Lots and lots of activity. Lots and lots of action. Now, if you do this, if you cast your mind back to David and Goliath, I wonder if, friend, you can remember the rumor that was going around the army just at that time. Do you remember it, David and Goliath? What was the rumor? What did the soldiers say twice to David? They said, whoever is brave enough to take on this giant, he's going to receive the king's daughter's hand in marriage. Do you remember that? Twice we were told that in the David and Goliath story. So we could think that that's what's happening here, couldn't we? Have a look with me at verse 17, just the opening verse. Have a wee quick look at it. You see it? Saul offers David his eldest daughter, Merab's hand in marriage. So we could think, couldn't we? Oh, this is, yeah, this is a natural outworking of that prize. Oh, he took on Goliath. He gets the girl. It's a, it's a lovely, we could think like that, but that's not what this is at all, because carry on in the verse here. Do you see what's happening here? Saul basically says, okay, you can have my daughter. You can have her. But as long as you keep fighting for me, you can have her as long as you continue in the front line. Do you see what this is? This is not a prize. What's happening here? Saul wants David dead. Do you understand that, friend? Don't you? He is so full of envy and he is so full of jealousy. What he's done is concocted this really wicked plan in the hope that David is going to perish on the battlefield. What do you think? Boys, what do you think of Saul's plan? Pretty wicked and evil. Everyone's agreeing. This is, this is ferocious. This is horrendous. Do you know what I think stands out, though, here? is Saul's sense of self-preservation and a sense of self-importance. Because would you look at look back at the verse? Look at the end of the verse. We get a real insight into Saul's thinking. Look at it. Why does he come up with this plan? What's at the heart of it? Look what he says. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against David, but let the Philistines be against him. Now, do, you, do you see what's going on here? Well, you hear last week, remember what we saw at the end. David had been thrust into the limelight at the end of the previous section, hadn't he? Do you remember that? He's in the public eye very much. So do you see, you hear the mechanism in Saul's mind. He's thinking, oh, I better not be seen to, to kill him. This better not be on me. If I kill him, I'm going to lose face. I'm going to lose uh, my reputation. He, oh, I'll pass him on to the Philistine dogs. They can put him to... Do you see what's happening? Isn't it horrendous? Isn't there a, self, a, self, a sense of self-importance? Saul is a man here who is governed by pride. Now, friends, isn't it true that our society, the culture that we're living in today, is very much, very much fixated on trying to solve the problems of mankind? You click on the BBC News, or you go onto Twitter, and you see this frenzy of activity trying to solve the problems of mankind. Problems of the inequalities in the sexes, and problems of global warming. 
right? We're all, we're, we're, we're to solve all of these problems. But isn't it the case that what you've got in front of you tonight, there in the heart of Saul, is actually the greatest problem of them all? The fact that outside of God's saving, tender grace, humanity is led and governed by pride. That's the greatest problem of Of all, isn't it? John Calvin said this. Listen to this. The whole human race is infected with the disease of pride. And you've heard, everyone in here has heard of J.C. Ryle as well. He said this. He agreed with Calvin. There was a big theological high five with Calvin. Because Ryle says this. He says, no sin is so deeply rooted in human nature than the sin of pride. And isn't it that that you and I are being reminded about this evening? I'm asking you, are you really sitting in church tonight longing after the world? Are you sitting here as a Christian desiring desperately to be able to live like the pagan people in your life? Really? Do you see what God is showing you? When there is a life that is alienated from him, it isn't Jesus, it isn't our saviour who reigns, it is pride that reigns. So that's the first thing we see with Saul. Second thing we see with Saul is this, that the ungodly life is filled with hatred for God's anointed. So you see the plan, what's the plan? Saul's going to... Try and get David killed by the Philistines. Answer me this, people. Does the, does the plan work? <laughs> Is that a pretty evil plan? Well, the plan does not work either because Saul changes his mind or because now, more than likely, that David refuses this proposal because he is scared that he can't pay the bride's price. The plan fails. So is that it? Is it? Can we close the book? Does Saul just move on? No, it's amazing, really, when you dig into this. Did you see what happens? He learns, he hears that another of his daughters is interested in David. Well, there's another girl interested in David. A fine-looking chap, obviously. And so what does he He tries again. Now, this plan, the second plan, is actually very different. And I would ask you to look at it with me. Look at verse 21. Here's the second scheme. Verse 21. So we see that Saul's hoping for two things. He's hoping either that Michal will lead David spiritually astray. Do you see that? That's the idea behind that phrase there, becoming a snare. That's the Old Testament way of speaking about idolatry. He's hoping either that Michal will lead David away from the Lord or... (laughs) He's hoping that David will accept a new proposal that Saul's got up his sleeve. And to see that, look at verse 25. Saul's servants effectively say to David, Oh, so you're worried about being poor, are you? So you're worried that you can't pay the bride price. What do they say? Look, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now that's disgusting. But do you see what Saul's doing here? He's again, it's relentless, isn't it? 
He's again trying to lure David in. He's trying again to, to have him pushed out in the battlefield so that the Philistines will have their men. Have their man. Now, tonight, friends, can I ask you, see when you take a step back from 1 Samuel 18, what is it that strikes you about Saul's attitude here? Is it not the case that you are actually quite taken aback with the extent of the hatred that he has for David? Are you not? I mean, isn't it a revolting thing to see the extent he hates, he despises God's anointed. In fact, just, just think about what he's willing to do with me a second. He hates David so much. What is he willing to do? I've got two girls at home. So it's maybe a bit more real to me. What's he willing to do? He hates David so much that he is willing to jeopardize two of his daughter's futures just to get his man. And he's willing to forego a lot of finance and the bride price just to get his man. What else is he willing to do? He is willing to unnecessarily engage his enemy in battle. He doesn't need to fight the Philistines at this point. But he does. Why? Why? All, all of it. Just because he hates them. Despises God's anointed. And I wonder this evening if you see the spiritual parallel between this and the society in which you live. Friend, I say it again to you. Are you sitting in here tonight and longing after the way that your friends have and the people at university and and these unbelieving people that you know? Are you longing after that? Is there a, a desire for that way of life, that seeming liberty and freedom that they have? Is that where you're at tonight? Don't you see the spiritual parallel? Those people outside of God's saving grace, by their nature, listen to me, though they do not know it, they hate Jesus. Are you really envious of that? That by their nature, because God has not changed them by his saving grace, that they stand in complete hostility towards Jesus. And and scripture even tells us why that is. Because light has come into the darkness. Darkness hates the light. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has, by his perfection, shown up the world's imperfection. By his cross, Christ Jesus has illuminated man's desperate need for forgiveness. Do you see it? In the heart of unregenerate man, there is a despising, like Saul, a despising of God's anointed. So there's pride here from Saul, and there's hatred from Saul. The third and the last one for Saul is fear. Doesn't it seem as though Saul is mirroring our attempts to appoint an assistant minister at points? Because he's got a plan and it fails. And then he's got another plan and it fails. <laughs> and then he's got a third plan and, and it fails here. Because do you see it? David doesn't die. He goes out into the battlefield and what happens? He manages to evade death and he manages to secure all of these foreskins, all of these, the price for Michael's hand. It's actually though the picture of Saul at the end of the chapter that I would really like just to draw your eye to this. Right at the end. Look at verse 29. And have a look at uh, uh, Saul. Verse 29. Do you see it? Verse 29. We are told that because of David's victory, 
sought even more. Now what's the word there? Do you see it, friends? Think of the picture. Think of it and imagine the picture. Saul is even more afraid of David. Now, a lot of you, as I look around, some of you haven't. Most of you have been here for the last few sermons. Haven't you? Most of you. What about that picture? Saul's even more afraid of David. Is that ringing any bells with you? Do you think it is? Look at verse 12. Would you do this? I'm sorry, dotting back from page to page, but look at it with me. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Because what? The Lord was with him. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. And when Saul saw that David had great success, he stood in fearful awe. And you know what? I, I'm not going to do it, but I could do. There's other references here. There's more references to it. Do you see the message in this portion of scripture? That when a life is alienated from God, when God's hand of favor is not on a life, when there is no favor there from God, what is true of that person? Their life is characterized by fear. There is, for that person, time and time again, there is real and genuine anxiety that listen to me, a life lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is characterized by frequent absence of calm. And so are, are you sitting here tonight and are you longing after the world? Are you sitting in here tonight jealous of your colleagues and your friends who don't have to go through the rigmarole of church services and don't have to worry about sanctification. Are you really envious of that? Don't you see what God is showing you here? There's pride, isn't there? There's hatred. And there's fear in the heart of unregenerate man. Now, if you were uh, here last Sunday, I hope you remember how we played things Last Sunday night, uh, we looked at the spear-throwing event in 1 Samuel, and we looked at it from two perspectives. Do you remember? We looked at it from Saul's perspective, and then we flicked it on its head. And we looked at the same event from David's point of view. In a sense, that's kind of what I want to do just now. We've looked at this, we've thought about Saul, and a life alienated from God. But do you know what? To be honest with you, that is not the main point and the main thrust of this section of scripture. No, the main thrust here is David and the blessings that he receives because God's hand of favor is upon him. And I just want to show you very, very briefly three things that are so pertinent and important for you if you're a Christian. First one is this, the admiration the admiration that the blessed receive. Now we know about themes and repeated themes in books of the Bible. Uh, I know that some of you have got study Bibles, and so you know how this works, don't you? Uh, Before you get into a book, maybe in the New Testament, there'll be a few pages that will introduce you to the book, and then we'll talk about some of the themes of that book. Let's take an example, shall we? Let's go for Philippians. And so there is this theme of joy. 
Do you know the idea? It kind of weaves its way through a book of the Bible, kind of threads its way through the chapters, a repeated theme in the book. Do you know what you've got in front of you tonight? You've got the idea of a repeated theme in microcosm. Because it's not repeated themes in the book of Samuel. You've got repeated themes in your hands in this particular section. And I want to show you what I mean. So would you let your eye go down to verse 20? And it just seems almost inconsequential, but I'll show you that it's not. Look at verse 20. We're told that Michal loved David. Now, when you read that, what did you think? Did you think, throw away line, she loved David. It's a throw away line. Or did you think it's just a device so that we know how Saul came up with his second plan? Ah, will you think of it with me? God's hand of fever is on David and Michal loved him. What were you told a couple of chapters ago? You were told this. God's hand of favor was on David and Saul loved David. What else were you told? We read it a moment ago. God's hand of favor was on David and the people of Israel loved David. Hang on a second. How does this chapter begin here? God's hand of favor was on David and Jonathan loved him. Do you see the repeated theme? Like you see the message of this portion of scripture that we've got. With God's hand of favor comes admiration, comes affection, comes love for David. And I do think tonight that is oh, it's such an important, important truth for us to grasp and hold to. Because we live in such a vicious society, don't we? Let me return to Billy Graham for a moment. And again, I have to say, I, I don't really care what you, we think of Billy Graham. But did you notice it? Billy Graham's death was announced. And I, I clicked on it. And I, I, was, I had been on the BBC website just moments before. And it wasn't there. And then his death was announced. First thing that I did, I went onto Twitter. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, this man had been dead for moments, and yet the knives had been sharpened. And already the criticism and the hatred was boiling over, and people were saying, what a bigot. How can a man believe any of this stuff? We live in a very vicious society. Now, what are we tempted to do as Christians because of that? We are surely tempted to shrink back, aren't we? We see and we know that if we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, there is going to be hostility and there is going to be opposition. But I'm saying to you, what are you seeing here with David? That with God's favor, there is and can be real positivity. There isn't all hostility and opposition. If you and I stand firmly, openly, for the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand what will happen? Christ in us will be attractive to some in the world. Isn't that marvelous? 
we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, He will display Himself and His glory and His attractiveness through us, through the church. Listen, as with David, God's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is endearing. We have to let Christ show. So there is admiration that the blessed receive. The second one, though, is the protection that the blessed receive. Now, remember what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about repeated themes, repeated themes. So will you think about this with me? I think, boys, my favorite bit, maybe you agree with us, okay? My favorite bit so far in this whole sermon series is just one idea, okay? And it's just before uh, David goes to fight Goliath, okay? You know the story really well. And he's before Saul, and he's speaking to Saul, and he's trying to convince Saul to let him go and fight. Do you know what he talks about? Maybe you remember? I fought lions and bears. Do you remember that? Imagine that. I love that idea. The shepherd boy taking on and defeating lions and bears. Now I wonder if you remember what is said immediately after that. Do you remember who David gives credit for that? He says immediately afterwards that God protected him from harm. Okay? Now what happens next? David takes on Goliath. Goliath! And what happens, friends? God protects David from harm. Then what happens? You have the king not once but twice trying to pin David to a wall with a spear. And what happens? God protects David from harm. And you get into this section. Now think about this section. David is sent out like a lamb amongst wolves before the Philistine army. And what do you see? God protects David from harm. You see the repeated theme. Do you see the message? With God's hand of favor upon this man, he is, he will be protected. And I think that is surely encouraging for you tonight. Because you think about this little detail of that. David knew nothing of Saul's plan. Do you see that? You tonight know that Saul's scheming. I tonight know that Saul was scheming. David knew nothing about this evil plan of Saul's. And I'm saying to you tonight, isn't that the same for you and for me? We live in a spiritual war. You understand that, do you? Do you understand that tonight I firmly believe the forces of evil and darkness are trying to attack us? I really do. I I believe that in here tonight, that that's what they would love to do, the satanic forces. They love to snatch you from Jesus' hand. But what do we know? Because of God's beautiful but undeserved favor resting upon us tonight, what do we know? That eternal spiritual protection will be ours forevermore. So we see admiration, we see protection, but we've left the best to last because we also see in David the success that the blessed receive. When you're writing a sermon, you're always encouraged uh, for there to be a pattern or a build-up and a crescendo. And you're always supposed to, you know, 
leave the best stuff to last. Have a big climax at the end of your sermon. Okay? When you're all writing sermons. Um, I, tonight, am going to end with the structure of this portion of scripture. And I did think about that. I'm scratching my head. Like, to me, <laughs> that's exciting. But I'm guessing maybe, you know, when I say, oh, I'm going to talk about the structure of a text, it maybe doesn't sound all that appealing and attractive to you. Not much of a big climax at the end. It is, though. Because the structure is amazing and it's beautiful. Can I show it to you? There are three sections in this portion of scripture. Three sections. And each section ends in exactly the same way. Is it just me that just loves that sort of thing when God does that? It's Each section ends with exactly the same point. God structuring things to highlight something for me. Can I show you what it is? If you look at verse 5. So David fights Goliath. And, and, and what said? He was successful. Right? You see that? He's successful. Look at now verse 15. On to the, so this is the end of the next section. On to verse 15. There is a repetition of David's success. Twice it's actually mentioned there, just so that you're definitely getting it. Now, would you go to the end of our portion of scripture? Look at the, look at verse 30. We're told again, David had more success than anybody else. Now you see, it's really clear the message, isn't it? That with God's hand of fever coming upon David, he has been granted prosperity, hasn't he? He has been granted, because of God's favor, he has been granted success. Very obvious. I'll say this, we're petrified of that theme. And I, I see why we are. We live in a time where prosperity and biblical success has been inverted, don't we? We live in a city where the prosperity gospel is rife. We live in a city in a time where online there's all talk about health and wealth, material success, material prosperity, and it is promised to the church because of faithfulness. And so what do we do as a result of that? We react against it. And we affirm, that's rubbish. That's not what the Bible says. doesn't promise material success. In fact, it promises you strife and trouble. But isn't this the message in here tonight? That with God's undeserved favor upon his church, we will be spiritually successful. We will spiritually prosper. And I long for you, Christian friend, to linger on that just now. Think of what I'm saying to you. If you seek God in your life, what will happen tomorrow, this week, and in the next few months? You will spiritually flourish. You are going to, in your Christian life, become ever more like the Lord Jesus Christ. What more success? Do you want than this? You are going to spiritually 
become more discerning. Spiritually become more mature. Your character is going to change that the Lord God of heaven and earth over the coming years is going to use you for great things that day by day as you seek God you will be brought ever nearer the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the sort of prosperity that we long for? That's what we see here. With God's favor comes success in Jesus. But I am with this. There's a question hanging in the air. See what the question is? Why do we get God's favor? How come we're getting God's favor and people outside are alienated from God? By all of these blessings. Admiration, protection, success. You know the answer? All because of Jesus. All because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And I long that you would consider what he has done for you as you walk out of those doors. And as you sing this last item of praise, would you think about this? What has Christ done for you? Think about David. What has Christ done for you? He has gone through all manner of pain and all manner of trouble to secure his bride. You see it, don't you? He has gone to war. He has gone to battle all to secure for himself his spouse. And you see it, don't you? What did he pay? What was the bride price on her head? It wasn't a hundred foreskins. It wasn't two hundred foreskins. What did we read earlier on in Isaiah 53? That it was he himself at Calvary who was cut off and thrown away all to win you all for his pride friends if you're a Christian tonight instead of longing after the world surely you enter out praising God for what he has done for you but if you are not a Christian in here tonight maybe it is living in fear and anxiety surely tonight You come to the Lord Jesus Christ, do you not? You come to Jesus and you accept the rest. You accept the peace and the eternal salvation that he is extending and offering to you this evening. Let's pray. Lord our God, we praise you for the Christian life. Lord, how it is that we are prone to being so negative and to criticizing and to moaning about our plight. But you have done everything for us. And Lord, we stand here tonight righteous in Christ. It is already done for us. Lord God, that we have an exalted state as though we do not deserve it. How dare we moan? How dare we be so negative? when faced with the the glories of the cross. Lord God, we praise you. We thank you that the Lord's anointed has done great things for his people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.